So this morning, Jose comes into my office and he says, all right, I'm pumped. Finishing up First John today. And I was like, no, no, we're not. And he kind of looked at me and then he turned and left. And I could have sworn as he left, he said under his breath, lazy bum. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he said that, but we'll find out. Um, actually, what I want to do is I want to tie in with last week. You know, last week we it was Easter, right? So we talked about the resurrection, obviously, and we went into some stuff. And I started thinking about that. And one of the things um, just thinking about oftentimes is that, you know, when they went around and said he is risen, you know, they had to, they had to deal with two things. First of all, um, is this true news? Is this true? Secondly, they had to deal with, is this good news? And you think about that for a second. And, and we know that's something they were struggling with because we have these two verses right here, trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. See, for the women, they'd figured out, this is true news. They went to the tomb. The tomb was empty. Then the risen Christ spoke to them, right? So, so they knew this is true news, but what they were struggling with, is this good news, and that's an interesting struggle when you think about it. And then in Matthew 28, but when they saw him, this is the uh, disciples, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. They're still struggling with, is this true news? This is so far, out, so far outside of the realm of their experience that they're having trouble wrapping their head around it and their mind around it and being able to figure out this whole thing of, is this good news? And is this true news? Because when you start thinking about, is this good news? You th what they're dealing with is, what are the implications now of following Jesus Christ after the resurrection? What are the implications? Number one implication is, their lives have not gotten any safer. All right? If anything, their lives have gotten more dangerous. And so they're, they're struggling. And we struggle with this too. I mean, we struggle with, is this true news? And uh, we talked about it a little bit last week. Talked about there's there's lots of research on this. There's a lot been done on this, but we can also struggle with is this good news? Because what does it mean if it's really true? If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, how is that supposed to affect my life? How do I live? What do I do now? What's really important in light of this? How does, and this is the key, how does what I believe impact my life? how I live. And so I want to talk about belief and believing. And uh, there is a classic statement. It's on your, on your sheet there, a classic statement of what Christians believe that has been read for a long time. And so I want to do something a little different. We don't usually do this, but if you're comfortable standing, I'd like you to stand and let's read this together. All right? Would you do that? All right, let's read. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins. 
the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Thank you. So, I want you to think for a moment. Think of two people. Two people who would look at this and say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, you know, Creator, Jesus Christ, His Son, born of the Virgin Mary. They just go down through this, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy, now, always, a lot of times when you do a public reading of this in a, in, a, in a Protestant church, when you get to that towards the end, the Holy Catholic Church, everybody goes, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Holy Catholic, Bob, what are you saying? You know, and, 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 and because they go, we're not Catholics. And I just want you to understand here, in the original, it read Holy Baptist Church, but they've changed it since then. So that's, no, no, okay, no. That simply means the whole total church made of all, that's why it's small c. The whole total church made up of all the believers, every single person on this earth who has trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior that's, that's, the, that's the Catholic, the whole church there. So two people, they read this. They affirm this. They say this, yes, this is what I believe. But let me describe to you. One of these, these persons, this, this, this woman is humble and loving and truthful, surprisingly bold, full of life, and everybody wants to be around her. And then this other person affirms the same beliefs but is, tends to be selfish and angry and judgmental. A little bit cold-hearted. He's not a, not, doesn't worry about gossiping about people. He's proud. And nobody wants to be around that person. And so here's the question. Do those two people share the same faith? Do they really believe the same things? And if they do, why are they so different? I understand that personalities can play into this, but why are they at such extreme ends of, 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 of the spectrum if we are saved by faith, if we believe, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, then why, why does for so many people saying that they are a follower of Christ, saying that they have believed in Jesus Christ and it does not affect their life in any way? Now I know, you know, we can be a little bit judgmental here. We can judge people by how, and we have to be very careful about that. But ultimately, if you have a person who says they're a believer in Jesus Christ and it seems to affect their life in no way, how can that be? How can that be? And what that means is we have to talk a little bit, we have to go a little bit deeper, deeper here about, let me, I'll call it convictions, all right? And, and I want to have this marker board because I'm going to point to it sometimes and sometimes too when, uh, when you write something down, people pay more attention. I don't know what the deal is, but I've got it on the screen for you there too. But we have what I call public convictions, all right? And, and, and this isn't something I made up, okay? This is, this is something that's been around for quite a while, the, the basic idea here. And, and I think about this. Public, public convictions are, are, are when we say what we think people want us to say, and, and we say something that we think other people want us to believe, even if we don't necessarily believe them, so that, uh, now, I don't want to get myself in trouble. Here we go. I'm going to get myself in trouble. So, if, if a woman puts on a dress and says to a man, does this make my hips look big, all right, what does the man say? Okay, the correct answer is, the man says, no, I didn't even know you had hips until you mentioned them, right? Okay, that's, that, oh, what is that? That's just PR, right? You're just saying that. Now, before anybody accuses me of being sexist, it happens both ways, all right? Let's, because only, only a man, right? Only a man can stand in front of a mirror with a big belly and no hair and gross personal habits and still think he's God's gift to women, 
right? Only a man could go, yeah, <laughs> still got it, baby. You know, <laughs> not that I would do that <sighs> yesterday. Um, so public convic convictions, that is saying what you think people want you to hear, all right? This is a biblical illustration of this, all right? At the birth of Christ, with, 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 uh, with Herod, with sending the... Um, sending the wise men to Jerusalem, he sent uh, to Bethlehem. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Now, is that true? No, it's not true. He totally had a different reason for this. So he's putting out PR. He's just saying it because he thinks that's what will, that's what will, will, will go over well. All right? So there's this public, public convictions. But then there's what I call private convictions. And I don't want to write it out. So there you go. Okay? So we got private convictions. And, and this is things where I think I believe them. I really, I think I believe, I believe I believe them. But I'm kind of fickle. I'm kind of fickle about it. And, and this, is, this is like if you could imagine a person um, who sees someone from afar and, and is attracted right? So, ah, man, I'm crazy about that person. And so I would love to enter into a sense of community and, and, and relationship with that person. And then maybe a connection is made and sparks fly and, and love is in the bloom and things develop. And suddenly when the possibility of this relationship going deeper and having more responsibilities and having more of a hold of a person's life, they begin to get a little bit of cold feet. So they start to back off. So they said originally, oh, I'm crazy. I'm crazy. Well, you know, what do we call a person like that? We call them a man. That's generally what, what they get called. But, but what happens is that in real time, circumstances change, so beliefs change. That's what can happen. All right? Biblical example of this. Peter, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. And Peter insisted emphatically. And that word emphatically in the Greek means over and over and forcefully, like he was scolding Jesus. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They all chimed in. Yeah, me too, me too. You know, the whole thing. They're all saying that. Now, did Peter believe that? He, he thought he did. He thought he was willing to die with Jesus. He was sincere. But was it true? No. We know the story. When the heat was on, when he was actually confronted with the fact that he might have to suffer if he aligned himself with Jesus, he backed down. See, sometimes we think we have convictions, but it turns out they can be very fickle. They don't run deep. And if our circumstances change, those convictions change also. So these are the, these are the, the private convictions. All right? Knowing what I believe can be a very tricky thing. So that leads to the third level, all right? And that's heart convictions, all right? That's the third level. That's the heart convictions. And this, this, these are the things. You will never violate these things. You will never violate them with your actions. And it's interesting because I think about this. If we could be observed for 24 hours a day and then... After a year of our life, someone was to write our creed. Like we just read the Apostles' Creed. What if someone could write our creed? Because what I think about this is heart convictions. Uh, the other thing you can call this, if you were me, you could call this, TRB, the real Bob. 
This is the real Bob. This isn't, this isn't the Bob that's putting on a face because he's a pastor and so he's supposed to behave a certain way or he wants people to think a certain thing. This isn't the Bob who thinks he believes certain things, but then when push comes to shove, he backs down on them. This is, the, this is where Bob really is. This is where I really am. And if we could be observed for 24 hours a day for a year, and then someone who could compile a creed about us, I mean, let's, I think we would all admit that over the course of a year, over the course of a year, over the course of a day, we, we, in some way, we get involved in a little bit of deception or exaggeration or distortion. And if you don't admit that you are, you just did by not admitting it. So we all are invited, in, involved in that. So if we had a, the real Bob Creed, it might sound something like this. I believe that a lie is a bad thing but it might be necessary for me to avoid trouble and get what I want. I believe that it pays to be nice, mainly to people who are wealthy, attractive, smart, athletic, successful, or just important. I believe I have the right to pass judgment on others. I believe I have the right to gossip about other people. I believe that I'd better be looking out for number one. I believe, and we could go on and on, I believe that tens of thousands of children dying every day because of preventable diseases is not worth risking my affluence to. I believe that Christians being persecuted all over the world is not worth risking my comfort for. See, that would be the real Bob. That would be the heart convictions. And we don't recite this, but this is what they're saying. We don't violate these beliefs a lot of times. And we can get all twisted up when we think we believe something and we go the other way. The, the, uh, the biblical writers have a great word for this. Um, the word is depravity. And it's not a word that's used very much anymore because it's, it's kind of an awkward word. It's kind of a difficult word. It means, you know, I, saying I am depraved, saying you are depraved. It means we're, we're helpless, we're hopeless. You can watch me. You will see it. You will see at times arrogance. You will see image management. You will see selfishness. It just leaks out because it's gotten to the core. And this is the core of your being right here, your heart convictions. And so we need to think about this because this word depravity shows us how sin has gotten involved, has gotten deeply twisted into the way we are and the way we see this world and because our, the ideas of what's important to us gets m- aligned with these misguided notions and our purposes get aligned with these misguided notions, bad behavior becomes inevitable. And see, this is what Paul talks about a number of times. It, it, it's not on your screen. Just listen to this. Listen to how Paul describes this. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Furthermore, since they did not think it was worthwhile to retain and obey the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And so, this is our problem. And then one day, this man named Jesus comes. Now, which one of these convictions do you think Jesus was most interested in changing? Heart convictions, right? That's the core That's what we talk about when we talk about changing, that God has this power to change us from the inside out. 
outside in change, changing the outside is, is, it's not, I don't want to say it's worthless, but it doesn't accomplish anything to the inside of me. Anybody, anybody who's had kids knows that. When my kids were little, we went to a church, we dressed up every Sunday, and so the kids dressed up every Sunday. They didn't like dressing up on Sunday. And I could dress them up and make them look like great little kids, and people say, oh, your kids are so wonderful. And I'm like, no, they're not. They're little demons from hell, I'm telling you right now. As soon as we get them home, man, it's only the grace of God that they live to six, all right? So, so, so I mean, I mean we, can, we can dress up the outside. We can put on these, we can put on these, these things. And, 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 and I know a bunch of you are going to go home and say to your parents, did you really almost kill me before I was six? And you know what? Your parents are going to say, yes, I'm telling you that. I can tell you that. I, that's just like automatic. So Jesus came to deal with heart convictions. He came to deal with the core. He's, he's interested in changing the real Bob. That's what it, he says. He says he wants to bring, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I'm, he's bringing up there, down here. So he brought it down for us. He brought it down. We don't have to go up to get it. He brought it down to us. Because if this doesn't change, this is all just behavior modification and image management. That's all it is. But when Jesus talks about changing us, he's talking about from the inside out, he's talking about right here. He's talking about changing our heart. He's talking about changing the core. And then it works out in our life. I think that's kind of what James was talking about when he said, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but they have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. He's saying, look, when this happens, change happens here. It works out. It comes out of us. Just like, you know, our sin nature, sometimes our, whether struggling with arrogance or anger or maybe there's someone we really don't like. And, and, you know, I don't know if you've ever had somebody like that, somebody who really doesn't like someone, and that other person comes in the room, and you can just watch the, the, the person who doesn't like them. You just watch their face get a little hard. Why? Because it leaks out. You can't hold it in. It leaks out. But you know what? When this gets changed, it leaks out. It can't be held in. If God has changed you, it begins to just come out. And so if we think about those two men at the beginning, one, their faith does not seem to play out in their daily life. And the other, it does. And the one who it doesn't, doesn't seem to be particularly bothered by that. And I think that's a unique problem to our culture because some people think saving faith means what is the minimal requirements for getting into heaven. What's the minimum that I have to say or do to get into heaven? Oh, I just got to say this prayer. Bam, I'm on it. I'm good. Now I can just go do whatever. I, you see, Jesus never said that. I mean, you think about that. He talked a lot about his kingdom. He talked a lot about the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is like. And he never said, here's the minimal entrance requirements. Here's what you can skate in by the skin of your teeth with. He never said that. Because saving faith changes. It changes the real Bob. It gets to the third level. And we still mess up. We're still trapped in this body. We still have a sin nature that we struggle with. But here's how it works. Here's how it worked for the apostles. 
I mean, I, I think about this. This man named Jesus, he showed up and he started, he started to do these things uh, and he came with these core beliefs right there. He came with these core beliefs that was in perfect agreement with the reality of God and God's kingdom and God's presence. There was this congruence between what Jesus said and what he did. It was perfectly linked. There was no difference. He believed that there was a heavenly father who was always present with him, always loved him. Jesus believed that like I believe in gravity. Right? It does not even occur to me that if I drop this pin, it's not going to make it. Right? I believe in gravity, gravity absolutely. Jesus lived in light of God's presence and love and grace like it was gravity. He just always obeyed the Father. And that obedience never looked heroic to Jesus. It just made sense to him. My obedience to the law of gravity does not, does not seem heroic to me. Right? It's just sanity to believe in the law of gravity and take the precautions you need to take for the law of gravity is just being sane. And Jesus lived that way. It was just moral sanity. It made sense. And so when the disciples looked at Jesus, they were thinking, I wish I had his life. I wish I could live like that. I wish I had his joy. I wish I had his security, his peace, his boldness. I wish I had that kind of life. And as they started to do the things Jesus said to do, they found out some interesting things. They found out his teachings actually made sense. And they worked. And when they were angry at someone and they tried to be forgiving, they found out it worked. And when they had things and became generous with other people with them, they learned that generosity is really better than hoarding. They found that serving somebody is actually better than lording over them. It actually works. Elton Trueblood wrote, the deepest conviction of a Christian is, is that Christ was not wrong. You, know, you think about such a simple statement. Jesus was right. Jesus was right. So Jesus taught that saving faith changes me right here, right now, and it has eternal consequences. The kingdom of God now has come to this level. But here's what happens in our day. We just talk about eternity. We just talk about the way off. And we try to get people to trust Jesus for heaven. That's what we think about. Without learning to trust him with their daily lives. Without ever really believing that what he says is true. And it just doesn't work. That just doesn't work. Because what it does is it reduces it to this. It reduces it to people who say... They just say they trust Jesus. They might even think they trust Jesus. But what they do goes in a totally different direction. It doesn't even concern them. Now, listen, I know you may be thinking, wow, man, I say I trust Jesus. I think I trust Jesus, but I know sometimes I do the wrong thing. I understand that. And when you do, I hope it bothers you when you do the wrong thing. Because that's the sign of the Spirit working in your life. Is when you go, ah, I shouldn't have done, you know, uh, I, I, I inflicted pain on God. God hates this sin. He hates this sin. And so what happens is we get people who think, oh, yeah, I'll just say this. You know, I think I believe. 
And it, it does not affect them at their core in any way. And we do them an incredible disservice when we allow that. We cannot live in the way that Jesus would live if we do not share at the core his convictions about the way things actually are. So when we talk about the two people at the beginning, the point is they both may say this, they both may even think this, but it works, it's working out totally different in each person's life. And I am not a, I'm not the person who can judge whether someone, any particular individual is a Christian or not. That's not my job. But I can tell you this, their faith is fundamentally different in some way. And there's a problem there. Because Jesus wants to change our core ideas, our heart convictions about how things really are. He wants us just to go all in. So a rich young ruler comes to him and says, I want to have eternal life. And what does Jesus say? I want your whole life. I want what's most important to you. And for you, it's your money. And the guy's like, oh, nope, not that. Not that. I'm not willing to go to that level. And so the question is, how do we get this kind of faith? How does our heart and our core change to look more like this? A lot of people never get to this point of trying to get there. They just think if I just say the right stuff, I'm, it's all good. But how do we get what the scriptures call the mind of Christ? Let the mind of Christ dwell in you richly. And we can't do it by ourselves. This is that depravity thing we were talking about. When our heart is changed, it happens as a gift. Only God can do it. Now, we have a role to play, but the Holy Spirit working is where the power comes from. But we do have a role to play. And it can be a little scary. Have you ever noticed whenever someone talks about the rich young ruler? I don't know about you, but I've noticed people get real uncomfortable. Because, man, all the money, all the money, all my money, God, it's a little scary, isn't it? Now, it's not saying if you become a Christian, God's going to demand all your money. But it is saying he wants all of you. He wants all of you. And I'm not going to say that for everyone here, none of you will he demand all your money. I can't promise you that. I don't know. But when we talk about what our role is in this process of having the mind of Christ, of having our heart convictions changed, it's a scary thing. I don't ever want to sugarcoat it. I don't ever want to lure people in into some kind of a relationship with God on false pretenses. Okay, so how do we change? Well, the obvious thing is we learn what Jesus taught. That's why we talk about it. You need to read your Bible. You need to spend time in your Bible because that's where you learn. But the second is this, and this is, the, this is this idea of oftentimes heart convictions can be based on the fact that we need to start trying to do the things he tells us to do. We need to risk at times obedience. And this is where we can get that concept of maturity um, mixed up, right? We think that pouring, pouring information into a person's brain causes them to mature, and that's not true. It may change what they say. They may get better at saying certain things. It may change even what they think they believe. But that alone, just information, does not change heart convictions, we need to take the truth of Jesus' teachings and we need to risk working them into the fabric of our daily life. Um, one of my favorite illustrations about this, there's an author named um, um, Henri Nouan who uh, he, he writes about a lot of different things, but one time he went to, um, 
He spent time with a, uh, with a circus. He, he just, he's one of those guys, I mean, I wish I could do, he just, he just got an interest in the circus, so he just took, took like six months and traveled with a circus, <clears throat> paid his own way and just traveled with him. He loved the circus, got real involved with the trapeze artists, and, 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 and started learning. And he writes about this. He says, in, in trape- there's just two people in trapeze. There's flyers and there's catchers. That's the only two people they are. And flyers, what do they do? They do their little thing, they spin, and then they open up, they stretch out their arms, and then they wait. Got to be the longest half second in the world when you're 80 feet in the air and you come out of a spin and you just open your arms. And they tell the flyers, close your eyes. Don't want you reaching. Only one person needs to reach. Because if two people start reaching, you know, they all, you know, and that leads to, right. So, um, and so this one guy who was a flyer, he was, he was telling, he was telling this writer, he, he said, that split second where I come out and my arms are out, he was saying, that moment, every cell in my body is screaming out loud. He said, and it's screaming, please catch me. Every time, no matter how many times it has. And, and he was saying, you want your flyers to be typically to be small. You don't want to have this kind of a situation ever in. Uh... <laughs> I just found that and just said, uh, you know, yeah, there's, there's deep spiritual truth right there, right? But if you're a catcher, you don't want a flyer with an appetite problem. And if you're a flyer, you don't want to catch who has sweaty hands, right? And this is where, you know, thinking about trusting God comes in. Because this, this guy who was a flyer, uh, he, said, he said, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public might think I'm the star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. And he says, so what's the secret to that? And he said, the secret is... I don't do anything. I do my little thing, then I reach out, I close my eyes, and I trust Joe. And he goes, you don't do anything? And he goes, nope, I'm a flyer, not a catcher. He catches, I fly. I just wait for him. And he said, I call it the dance of trust. I let go of my trapeze, and I wait. And then I'm caught, letting go, waiting, and being caught. And I thought, now there's some spiritual truth there. Because Jesus calls on, he called on that rich young ruler, he calls on us many times to let go of things. And he doesn't promise an immediate answer because sometimes we wait. That's the hard part, isn't it? You're in a difficult situation. You don't see the answer you trying to turn it over to God, and God says, okay, wait. Trust me and wait. And you're flying through the air, and every cell in your body is screaming, help me, God. And God is saying, wait for me. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't know. I mean, who likes waiting? Who waits recreationally, right? Nobody. You want to have some fun? Yeah, let's just go wait. No, not going to do that. You know, if you have little kids and you ever hear your kids say, let's go somewhere and wait, you've got a problem. I don't know what to say. It's just weird because we don't like to wait. And God calls us because that 
amplifies our trust. He catches us. And we go, I knew I could trust you. I knew I could trust you. And so God says to us, will you let go? He said to Abraham, he said, let go of everything familiar. Let go of your family, your home, your culture, and go where I tell you. Will you do that? Will you let go and go do that? And Abraham said yes. And then he did a ton of waiting. And I mean, we know the story of Abraham. He didn't wait so good sometimes. And that rich young ruler, and Jesus said, will you let go of your trapeze? Jesus spoke to a woman who was caught in an adulterous affair, and he said, go and sin no more. He said, will you let go of that relationship that dishonors God? Will you let go of that? And he calls me. He calls the real Bob. He says, I want you to let go of some things. I want you to trust me, and I want you to let go. I want you to let go of a relationship because it dishonors God. I want you to let go of an attachment to money. I want you to let go of power. I want you to be a servant. I want you to let go of your addiction. You need to admit it and get help. I want you to let go of that habit. I want you to let go of that grudge. I want you to let go of your ego, your pride, your money, your reputation, your disobedience. He says, I want you to let go. And I'm telling you, at some point, you may have to wait. I want you to say yes and just hold out your arms. And understand, you just don't have control in this situation. You're a flyer. You can't do anything as you wait for the catcher. And God is calling us. Will you trust me? Will you let go? Will you obey? Because the truth is, we're all born holding on to a trapeze. It's our life. And we hold on to it tightly. Our security, our okayness, our success, our importance, our worth, our stuff, our bodies, our health, our influence, we hold on to it tightly. And we spend a lot to hold on. And Jesus says, you can let go. You can let go. You can let go of your life because I'm going to catch you. And every time you let go and then ultimately you're caught, your heart changes a little bit more and a little bit more because you learn more and more to trust. You learn more and more to, to obey and you start living that kingdom life. And you know, whether you like it or not, one day, it might be in the very near future, it might be 50 years from now, you're going to have to let go of that trapeze called your life. And you're going to have to trust the catcher. And so he's saying, I want you to let go now. I want you to begin to act in obedience. And prepare for the time you will spend with him in eternity. And so, how do we change here? We learn what Jesus teaches, that's the obvious part, and then we begin to act in obedience in little things and big things. Maybe you go and you talk to that neighbor you've never talked to, and just say hi. You're not going with an evangelism plan, you're not going you know, with a booklet and a book and a video and say, here, you know, I gotta, you just go and begin to, ma- begin to have a friendship, begin to have a relationship, so that ultimately those types of conversations are natural and easy and will come up. But you gotta go and start talking to that neighbor to start it. Maybe it's doing something kind for that person who's difficult, that person that you live with or the person at work or the person at school or whatever it is. Going out of your way to do something kind for someone who's difficult. And then saying, okay, God, the worst thing this person can do is say, leave me alone or no or whatever. That's the worst they can do here. 
Maybe it's making things right with someone you need to go and talk to. Maybe it's deciding to get involved in something that honors God. Maybe involved in, 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 in some sort of service, some sort of uh, something here at the church, something outside. I mean, there's, there's so many things that CareNet and Thrive and all these different things where you can invest a small amount of time in a way that is productive for the kingdom of God. But it starts with that. It starts with a saying, I'm going to step out on obedience. God, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. And then watching him work, allowing him to work, allowing his spirit to change us little by little from the inside out. You know, the Bible has a lot of examples of faith, and one of the greatest ones is, is uh, Abraham. I missed him a little earlier. God told him, let's go, and he went. And then God comes to Abraham, and he says, he sa- and, and the Bible talks multiple times that Abraham's this man of faith. And God says, you're going to have a son, now wait. And he did wait. He, went, he waited for a long time. He moved to Egypt, you know, and, and, and he realized his wife Sarah's a very beautiful woman. He was afraid the king might kill him so that he could take Sarah's wife. So he said, just tell him you're, you're my sister. So, you know, not real husband of the year material right there. Um, and, but still waited, no son. And I can imagine the frustration. And finally, Sarah says, just take my maid and have a son by her. And he doesn't, you know, does he say, oh, no, Sarah, we're going to trust God on this one. And I love you too much. I know this would hurt you deeply at the core for me to do that. I'm going to be true to you and trust God. Does he? No, he does not say that. She says, why don't you take my handmaiden and you can have a son? He's like, yeah, that's a good idea, right? And so God comes to him and, and God reaffirms his promise. He says, nope, it's not working that way. And the Bible says, God said, you're going to have a son by Sarah. I mean, this is a man of faith. Isn't that interesting? Abraham fell, Abraham fell face down when God told him that, and he laughed. And he said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear an, a child at the age of 90? So, you know, he's this paragon of faith. God says, you're going to have that son. He's like, yeah, <laughs> whatever. And then it says, Sarah was listening in the tent. And it says, Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out this age and my master is old, I now have this pleasure. Whatever. And the Lord said to Abraham, why, why does Sarah laugh? And Abraham, you know, standing up for his wife, turns and goes, hey, why'd you laugh? And then you have this wonderful line where Sarah, amazing, she looks at God and says, I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh. One time all our kids, somebody gave each one of our kids at church a candy bar. We told him we're going to take him home and, uh, you know, see how you guys do this afternoon because Sunday afternoons could be H-E, double hockey sticks with my kids. So, something about Sunday afternoon. I don't know what it was. So we said, you, you do guys do, and then Sunday evening, uh, you'll, you'll get to have your candy bar after dinner, right? So I come in, and one candy bar is missing, middle of the day. And I didn't even have to, Holly, my little dollar Holly comes down chocolate smeared all over her face. Did you eat your candy bar? I didn't eat my candy bar, Daddy. I'm like, oh, man, I was hoping you'd be the smart one. <laughs> you are so dumb. <laughs> you got candy all over your face. You know? and, and, and God says, yeah, why is Sarah laughing? Sarah's like, I didn't laugh out loud. And God's like, I think I heard that. You, know, you can imagine that. And so what happened? Well, we know what happened. They had these doubts, and they had to wait, They had to let go, and it took years and years and years, and they were caught by the catcher. 
And Sarah comes home one day after years and years, and she says, you will not believe. I have not been overeating. I'm pregnant. Can you imagine how they laughed with joy? Can you imagine how they laughed? We know they laughed because they named their, same, their son Isaac, which means he who laughs. They named their boy, he laughs. And Sarah said in Genesis 21, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. They will laugh because they wanted so badly. They will laugh because they misbehaved and God still stuck with his promise. They deceived and he still stuck with them. They doubted and God still showed up. God still caught them. And they will laugh and everyone who hears will laugh for the sheer joy of it that God did what he said he would do. And he says to us, and here's Abraham, he's this paragon of faith. And when you read it, you go, I'm better than that. You know, he, he, it's, God says, I take the little bit of faith and I work with it. We have our public convictions and that's just for show. We have our private convictions and that's what we think we believe, but our, oftentimes our actions don't show it. And we have our heart convictions. That's what really comes out in our life. And Jesus says, how am I going to, the Bible tells us, how are we going to change our heart convictions? As the Holy Spirit works in us through God's word, we begin little by little to just take steps of obedience, to point ourselves in a direction. And God uses that and works with that and changes us from the inside out. It is possible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I confess to you, that I struggle with my heart convictions. And Lord, I pray for myself and for everyone in this room that little by little we would change, you would work, and we would see it and we would laugh. We would have joy in following and serving you when we realize what a gracious, blessed thing it is to be in a relationship with the creator of the universe, to be loved and to be able to have faith in him and have him change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering now as they come forward. Uh, I, do, I want to say that if you are a guest here, we're not asking you to give.